Well, turn you please to um, that chapter that we read just a few moments, few moments ago, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and the verses that I want us to look at in Ephesians chapter 3 um, are um, the, the prayer of Paul in verse 17. He says, I pray that you... And he's not just speaking to the Ephesian believers here because he says he wants them to know with all the saints, I pray that you being rooted and grounded um, uh, in love uh, may be able to, with all the saints, be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be be filled to all the fullness of God. I I find those verses staggering. That here is not just the love of God in a broad sense, but the the specific love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure you're mindful that um, 15 years ago on this date that there were people who, serving their God, a God of hate, were willing to take the lives of as many people as they could, thousands of people, as many as they possibly could, for their God. And their God, although they refer to him as all-merciful, um, is not a God of love at all. And we always become like the gods we believe in. If we believe in a God of hate, we'll, we'll be people who hate. If we, be, if we grasp this love of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul wants us to, and remember he's telling us that this is so difficult that we will actually need the power of God to help us to do that. So this morning, I'm actually taking, taking, I'm doing something which is humanly impossible. I'm going to try to unpack these four dimensions of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's something that I aspire to understand myself. Because according to the Apostle, you and I, if we grasp it, If God enables us to grasp these four dimensions of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be filled to all the fullness of God. So I'm trying to undertake what is humanly impossible this morning. But just because it's humanly impossible does not mean that it's impossible. Because remember what what Luke says, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So I'm always up for the impossible if, uh, if God is here to help me, you know. So, um, when we, when we read about these four dimensions, there are certain commentators who will say, well, we mustn't read too much into them. We, we mustn't imagine there really is a kind of height and depth and breadth and length of the, it, this is Paul using hyperbole, but I don't think that that's the right way of looking at it. I think Paul throws out hints, more than hints. I think he gives us indications within the letter to the Ephesians about what he is getting at. 
I mean, just take this, this, the chapter in which we're reading this from. He talks about the breadth of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts off the chapter by saying that he's writing to you, he's writing to Gentiles. He's not just writing to the Jewish people within the church. He's writing to Gentiles within the church. And he says that God has given him a special mission. And that is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter and the rest of the apostles, um, we read in Galatians chapter 2, focused their attention on the Jews. But Paul was given this unique ministry of reaching the Gentiles. And he's writing to his Gentile converts in Ephesus. And he wants them to grasp the breadth of the love of Christ. And as he starts this chapter, he's giving them an indication what he's getting at. When I don't know whether, if you have ever thought about where the first time the love of God is mentioned in the Bible. You won't find it in Genesis. You won't find it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You, you, it's only when we get to the seventh chapter of the book of Deuteronomy that God says that he loves the Jewish people. And I think that he waits until the seventh chapter because if in the wilderness... He had said to them, I love you. They would have said, well, why is it that you're keeping us in this wilderness? Why are you not bringing us into the promised land? Why do you not just forgive our sins? Why don't you just bring us into the promised land um, if you love us? And of course, in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, in uh, in the Christian order of, of books of the Old Testament, the, the book begins, remember this is the last prophet So it's been about a thousand years, maybe 1100 years, since the people came out of the, out of Egypt. And he says to them, I have loved you. And they say to him, how have you loved us? And he's able to say to them, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Look at the history. Esau was, uh, was the older brother. He should have received the, the birthrights. But he threw it away, and I blessed you. I gave to Jacob all the blessings of the firstborn. And look at the, the nation of, uh, of Edom, Esau now. They, they really have ceased to exist. He's just got a, a small remnant left. But Jacob have I loved. And they could look back over a history of a thousand years, 1100 years, something like that, and they could say, see, yeah, well, of course, God is right. He has looked after us. He has cared for us. He has forgiven our sins. He has provided for us. Sure, he took us into exile, but he brought us back again just as he said he would. And it's when you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, they're coming, the people of Israel are coming to the end of their wilderness wanderings. And it's been a rough wandering. The previous generation has all died out. There is a new generation. God hasn't given up on them. And he's able to say to them, I love you. And I love you because I've loved you for the sake of your fathers. I entered into a covenant with Abraham, an unbreakable covenant with Abraham. And I've kept that covenant. And I've been gracious to you. I've been kind to you. Not because you were a good people. Not because you're a great people. Not because you're a numerous people. In fact, you were the, the, the least numerous people in the world. But I loved you because I was going to keep my covenant. I was determined to keep my covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
And it's not until we come to John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, and rightly so, that we read that God loves the world. And you have people who say, well, how has God loved us? How does God love us? Why does he allow sickness, a death, and all those kind of things? But God prefers, it seems, to demonstrate his love before he ever speaks about it. God's actions speak louder than his words. And so when we come to John 3.16 and we read, for God so loved the world, there'll be people who will say, well, if he loves the, the world, how is he showing it? And he's showing it because he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Is there a greater love than that? Is a greater love to be shown than God giving his own son so that we might be saved. So there is a breadth to the love of Christ. And the wonder of that love is that it not only, it not only reaches out to the Jewish people, not only reaches out to Israel, but it reaches out to you and me. As I'm looking around this congregation this morning, I'm seeing all different color faces. I'm seeing people from different cultures, different backgrounds. And isn't it wonderful that here in this place this morning, we have an evidence that God loves the world and that message has gone out into the whole world so that this morning there are people here from different nations, different cultures, different backgrounds. And we are all sitting here together and we are all singing songs to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we're going to have... Uh, tea and coffee together and we're going to enjoy fellowship with one another that that is quite astonishing i remember um one of my colleagues uh, david bond at um, his church in north uh, in northwest london uh, they used there were like it was a cosmopolitan congregation like this and every now and again they would have a saturday night when they would have an international evening and people would bring um, food from, you know, that was typical of their own countries. Um, and they would all gather together for fellowship. And David took a Jewish man, one of his Jewish friends, along to one of these international meetings, and this man said to him, David, the only place where this could happen would be in a church of Christ. You would never see this in the synagogue. You'd certainly never see it in a mosque. You wouldn't even see it in a Hindu temple. It's only in the church of Jesus Christ that we all come together. We truly are one. And what unites us? It's that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a love that reaches out to me. It's a love that reaches out to you. It's a love that reaches out to everybody in the world. John Wesley, um, or Charles Wesley rather, who was converted just round the corner, wrote, the arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. And it's true. Thank God it's true. But what about the length of the love of Christ? Well, I think Paul gives us a really big clue to what he's talking about when in the first chapter he says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, even as he, before the foundation of the world, he loved us and predestined us. And how, how long is the love of God? What's the length of the love of God? It's from eternity to eternity. It really is a love without beginning, and it's a love without end. You know, in the... Um, some of the most popular, popular songs are songs that have lyrics like, My love has no beginning. And my love has no end. I will love you for eternity. And when people tell us that, and even when we say it to somebody that we love, you know, we know it's not really true. But the thing is, there is something that touches us, that somebody loves us enough to even say that to us. And sure, you know, it's, it's romantic stuff and all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, um, we would love it to be true, wouldn't we? We would love to know that this person that I love has always loved me and always will love me. Uh, and that's why those sentiments are always so well received. But when we read about the love of God, God says to Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with cords of love, I have drawn you to myself. And that's the story of every one of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. When did God start to love you? When you were converted? No. When you decided to pull your socks up and be a better person, God said, oh, that's what I like to see. I love that kind of thing. I love people like that. No. When you were a little child and you know, and you were so cute. It's true, some of us were cute when we were little, weren't we? <laughs> At least that's what our parents tell us. God loved you then? No, it all started long before then. Before you were a twinkle in your father's eye, as they say, God loved you. Take Dr. If, you, if we could, if, if we really could get a TARDIS and really go back to beyond the beginning of time, God would be loving us. And if we could get in that same TARDIS and go forward into the future until the end of time, God would be loving us. That's the length of the love of God from eternity to eternity. And it's a reality. And Paul wants us to grasp that. I can't get my head around that. But it's true because the Bible says it's true. No wonder Paul once says that we need the power of God to grasp this. Because I can't grasp it. I, all I know is that it's true, and because it's true, I believe it. So what then about the, the, um, the depth of the love of Christ? And it seems to me with each of these dimensions, they're all infinite but each of these dimensions, as we look at them, Paul structures them in such a way that, um, that there's, there's, he's taking us, as it were, deeper and higher all the time. What about the depth? Well, he tells us in chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ 
came from the heights of heaven to the earth. When you think about it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is he? He's the Lord of all. He's the creator of the universe. And so high is he above his creation that Psalm 113 says that he humbles himself to look into the things in heaven and earth. And you can read that as he stoops. You know, you, you, you think of when, you know, you see a crowd of ants on the ground and they're all running to a fo- uh, forward and you stoop down to have a look at them because you want to observe what they're doing. And you're stooping. And the writer, uh, and uh, the, the psalmist says that God stoops down, he humbles himself, not only to b- behold the things in earth, but the things in heaven and earth. When God looks upon the angels, the highest of the angels, he is stooping. He's humbling himself. Remember some years ago I went to a lecture in Southampton by the... Um, um, by, uh, by, of the Baha'i faith. And uh, the, 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 the um, session was open for questions at the end. And so I raised a question. I can't remember what it was, but this, this man said to me, he said, young man, what God expects of us to, is to be humble because God cannot be humble. He was a fellow northerner. And I said, that's interesting, because I was just reading in Psalm 113 today that God humbles himself to behold the things in heaven and earth. And he said to me, young man, I don't know anything about the Bible. (laughs) But you see, the idea that God would humble himself is incomprehensible, isn't it? Even we find that difficult. Habakkuk says that God is of too pure eyes than to look on iniquity but he looks on us doesn't he even though he's of two pure eyes but 2,000 years ago he didn't just stoop to look upon us he stooped and came down among us came down to, to that earth that logically speaking ought to is so impure that he he has difficulty looking at us because we're so sinful. But he came down among us. I'm sure you, some of you have seen the film Slumdog Millionaire, right? And you remember that scene that makes you cringe? Where the little boy, in order to get to see his hero, jumps into a cesspool and pulls himself out and rushes to see. In a sense, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ was coming down into. This horrible cesspool of sin so he comes not only from earth but he comes down not to Jerusalem and it's interesting when you look at when you look at the Old Testament scriptures that Jerusalem was the place where God said he would dwell God fills heaven and earth but there are some places that God says that he is there in a particular place and he said that he would be in the land of Israel in a, in a special sense but in the land of Israel, when, when Jonah runs away from the face of the Lord, it simply means he's leaving the land of Israel because that's where God had placed himself. But in the land of Israel, he was 
particularly in the city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem, he was particularly in the temple. And in the temple, he was particularly in the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, he was particularly seated on the mercy seat, his throne. That was the throne of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes down into this world, but he doesn't come as the creator of the universe, as the one who sat on that throne as God in the temple. He comes and he, he, he lives in this, or he's born in this little backwater of Bethlehem that is so small that even Micah the prophet says, but you, Bethlehem, though you be least among the princes of Judah, out of you shall he come forth, who is to be um, the shepherd of my people, who is to lead my people and rule my people. And so when the, when the Magi from the east turn up in Jerusalem, that's the obvious place for them to go, isn't it? Because that's where the king of the Jews is bound to be born. But he's not. He's not only come down to, to earth, to this cesspit world, but he is, he's living in Bethlehem not even in the city of the great king. And then he has to go to Egypt where God had said, you shall not pass that way again. You shall not go down into Egypt. But he becomes an exile in Egypt, the place where Israel had been persecuted, the place of slavery for Israel. He goes back, he goes there. And when he comes back, he doesn't come to live in, in, um, in Jerusalem. He's in Nazareth. And, and, and eventually is in, in Capernaum. And when, um, uh, in the first chapter of John, um, it said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nazareth was Nazareth, uh, Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a trade route. And he wasn't living that sheltered life in Jerusalem where the religious folk tended to make their home he's mixing with Gentiles he's mixing with those who are not the people of God and then and you see what's happening there is this kind of lowering all the time and then at the age of 30 he goes to the Jordan he goes to the Jordan to be baptized by John and John says to him I'm not fit to baptize you You should be baptizing me because it's a baptism of repentance for sins. It's God calling the, the, the people of Israel back to himself to repent, to turn to him. And everybody who sees the Lord Jesus Christ go into that water, into that muddy water and submerge thinks he's one of us. And he doesn't turn around and say to them, listen, folks, I know that I'm undergoing this baptism, but listen, I'm not like you. I'm, I'm, I'm identifying myself with you. I'm the king of the universe. I'm identifying myself with you in order that I might save you. He doesn't say that. Everybody standing on the banks of the Jordan River is going to have the wrong impression about him. They are going to imagine here's another one like us. He has sins to repent of when he has none. But he's going to go lower yet. He is going to go into the Judean wilderness And there he is going to be tempted by Satan, his great enemy. Now, you read the book of Job, and Satan could not harm one hair 
on the back of one of Job's camels until he had come before God, until he had come before the Lord Jesus Christ himself and asked permission. And now he comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you're the son of God, if... And the Lord Jesus Christ is submitting himself to temptation from his great enemy. And then he begins three years of ministry when he touches lepers. You are not allowed to touch a leper or even go close to them because you'd be unclean. He's mixing with tax collectors the most despised people in the nation. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus in Jericho, you remember how Luke records it for us as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. And he passes through Jericho. Zacchaeus, the most hated man in Jericho, runs, climbs a, a sycamore tree so that he can see Jesus. And everybody is praising Jesus, and everybody hates Zacchaeus. And as soon as Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to come to your house. Suddenly, the hatred turns from Zacchaeus, and it's concentrated on Jesus. This man is, is mixing with sinners. This man is mixing with tax collectors. He's mixing with the great enemies of our country. And, and it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in a few days' time in Jerusalem. Because what is going to happen? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to have our sins transferred to him. He is going to take upon himself the guilt. He is going to become even. even cast off by God, as it were, that the sky is going to turn dark because God has turned away his face from his Father, has turned his face away. So we're singing in that first hymn. And that's what's going to happen. He is now approaching the point where he's going to be tried by unrighteous men, the God of the universe is going to be put on trial. And he's going to submit to it. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he loves those people who are putting him on how, how is this possible? And when it comes to the cross, here is the, not just the most painful, death that anybody could possibly devise but it's the most shameful when they when they crucified people they, they crucified them naked so they were completely humiliated and completely humiliated also because when somebody was crucified they lost control of their bowels they lost control of their bladder can you imagine people laughing at him? And not only are there, is there the pains in the hand, but all that blood is going to attract the flies that are going to bite, that are going to sting. We cannot even begin to imagine the physical pain of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just the physical pain. It's the spiritual pain 
as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the greatest blessing that can any, ever come on anybody is God turning his face towards us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. The worst thing that can ever happen to anybody is that God turns the face, his face away from them. Remember in, in Isaiah 53, we hid as it were our faces from him. And if you read in the NIV, it, the, the footnote says, or he hid as it were his face from us. How can, how can the same Hebrew words have two different meanings? Well, simply because this, of this, the translators are translating, they're interpreting what is being said. And literally it means, from him was the hiding of the face. From him was the hiding of the face. When the sky turns black, the face is hiding from him. The face has stopped shining on him. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Apostles' Creed says he descended to hell. He didn't descend to hell after his death. He descended to hell during that time when the sky turned black and people couldn't see. The face of God was turned from his own beloved son he has gone at that point to the bottom of the bottomless pit. And why has he done it, brothers and sisters? Because he loves us. Behold the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. Behold the Son's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should love us in order that we should become his treasure. The breadth, the length, the breadth reaches to you. The breadth of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ reaches to you and me. The length of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, that he has loved us forever and he will love us forever. The depth of it is that he comes from the highest heavens down to the lowest depths. But there is a height. There's a height to the love of God. And the height is in chapter 4 that when he returned to heaven, he didn't return alone. But he took with him a whole host of captives. He came down, emptied him uh, uh, in the words of, of Philippians chapter 2, that he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and being found in, in fashion as a man, humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross, but it doesn't end there. Wherefore God has highly exalted him. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And he, is, he returns to heaven and he takes all those who were held captive by sin and by Satan. We go, he takes them to heaven with him. And that's why Paul can say elsewhere that you and I are seated in heavenly places in Christ. He tells us in chapter 2, doesn't he? 
that we were dead in our trespass and sins. We're now seated in heavenly places with, with Christ. And although there's a sense, in one sense, we're sitting here in this church building in London, in reality, you and I are seated in heavenly places. I used to have a friend, Christian friend, and um, he had a little sign on his desk. And it said, keep looking down. And somebody said to him one day, what do you mean keep looking down? Um, you know, don't you mean keep looking up? Because that's what people say, don't they? Keep looking up, keep looking up. You know, things will get better. Keep looking up. And he said, well, no, because I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ. And I'm looking down on all my problems, all my troubles, all my trials. And there's something to that, isn't there? Because if we are seated with Christ in heaven then we can look down on all our problems. See what Paul means when he says, if we can grasp this, if you and I can grasp this incredible love of Christ, these four infinite dimensions of the love of Christ, if we can grasp it, we'll never complain again, we'll never moan again, we'll never feel cast down again. We'll have a whole different look on life. And it will make an impact on us that will change our lives from now on. I've been thinking about this and meditating upon it for years and years and years and years. And I've not got there yet. But I grasp a little bit of it. And that little bit, that little bit that I understand has helped me and does help me to get through some of the worst times of my life. And if you can grasp it this morning just a little bit, what I've tried to do is just unpack these wonderful words. And I know I've done it inadequately. But if you can grasp it, brothers and sisters, just a little bit, it'll change your life. If you can grasp it all, as Paul wants us to, you'll be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a fantastic passage of Scripture. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. What a wonderful love. What a wonderful Savior. And we're going to sing of his love now. Uh, as we sing Love Divine.